0: well, good afternoon. Go ahead and remain standing as I read from God's Word. Uh, we're going to find ourselves in Malachi chapter 1. Uh, we're looking at verses 6 through 14. Here's what the Word of God says. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand?" says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made, who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. If you are new, my name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you just walked in, we're going to find ourselves in Malachi chapter 1. We're looking at verses 6 through 14. Uh, if you've never read through Malachi or even heard Malachi, but you've got a Bible on hand, it's going to be the last book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters, about 55 verses, so you should find it pretty quickly. While you open or load your Bibles, I've got two quick updates for you. The first one is a reminder from last week. Uh, we recently published a discipleship guide for our series in Malachi. Our desire for you is to grow as disciples of Jesus, and so we want to produce gospel-centered content for you to use, and so please visit the website to download that guide. In addition to that, within that guide, parents, there are sections that are dedicated to family discipleship and worship, so I would highly recommend downloading our guide for you to use with your kids. The second thing, and I've never said this, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but, and I just learned this a couple of years ago, October, I think it's just October, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, now, hold, on. thanks man, yeah, not where I was going, thanks guy, thank. all right, okay, hold on, all Right. that's not where I was going, here's where I'm going with this, right, uh, first, thank you, love you, okay, <laughs> As I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, man, what gift do I want? Uh, and to be quite honest, like y'all have been so kind and, and sweet and generous. Here is the gift that I thought of this past week when it comes to Pastor Appreciation Month. Right? Uh, I serve right now as the only pastor here at Storehouse McAllen, and I love serving as your pastor, and I love y'all. Here is what I want. Y'all ready? Take notes for this. I want you to say thank you or to take those who are volunteer leaders, volunteers out to lunch or dinner. They do a ton of work in order to serve you, uh, whether it's getting ready for worship service so that you would be pointed to the character of God so that Parents would be partnered up with as you disciple, or yeah, as you disciple your kids to the glory of God. And so, for instance, when I think about the band like Izzy and Maribel, Maritza and Alan and, and, and Leo, who are up here, they get here around two o'clock and they're setting up and they're rehearsing and they're practicing and they're getting ready, not just to sound good, but to point you primarily to the character of God to show you how beautiful Jesus is when it comes to kids ministry they're getting ready all of the content so that they would partner with you parents as you disciple your kids and they're just coming alongside to help you in that endeavor Um, our greeters who want to give you a gospel experience before you hear gospel song and praise and and preaching they're here an hour and a half before you get here uh, and, and, they're doing such a great work and there's so many more volunteers, our production crew in the back, my, the gift that I want is after service during the week, reach out to them, encourage them, tell them, thank you, take them out to dinner, get them the gift cards, get them gifts that are really, really, really good, uh, uh because they do so much for us and specifically for, for you. So that would be what I want this year. Um, All that being said, let's dive in to to our time. Again, if you just walked in, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. All right, here we go. Everyone worships. I don't care who you are, everybody worships. Every single person on this earth is a worshiper. Whether you are a Christian or not, you worship, You and I were designed to worship, and we devote our worship, our attention, our life, our time, our money to whatever we think and believe is worthy of our worship, worthy of our adoration, worthy of our affection. The primer for this is the orientation of your heart throughout regular rhythms of ordinary life. For a moment, I want you to consider this past week. I want you to look back, you don't have to say anything, I want you to look back and I want you to consider this past week, what or who did you worship? Straight up, honest answer. What did you give your time to, your adoration, your affection, your attention to this week? Whatever you thought was good, whatever you decided was worthy, received your affection this week. Maybe you were satisfied or maybe you were left disappointed again. One theologian says it this way, this is not on the screen, one theologian says it this way, we become what we worship, all humans have been created to be reflecting beings, and they will reflect whatever they are ultimately committed to, whether the true God or some other object in the created order. We began our series last week in Malachi, and in this section today, we're going to see God speak to Israel through Malachi, and He is confronting their sinful and apathetic worship. I want you to remember that last week, God opened up to Israel by, before bringing them conviction, He reminded them of His covenantal love to them, saying in verse 2, I have loved you. Before opening up with confrontation, before opening with a hard word, which is what we're going to read today, God opens up with his covenantal love. God loves Israel, and God loves you. In fact, it is because God loves his people that he now confronts their condition. So remember last week I told you, hey, always go back to the first five verses, right? These five verses, I have loved you, Israel, and it's poured out onto us. This is going to be the linchpin of this entire book. So once more, it is because God God loves Israel, it is because God loves us in Christ that he now confronts their condition, and so in our passage, we're going to see that the tables have been turned from last week where it's not that, God's, uh, it's not that God doesn't love Israel, but it's whether Liz, Israel loves God. And so he confronts them of their worship of him. And what you're going to read, if you didn't hear it already, what you're going to read is Israel's response to God. Israel's going to respond by saying, we're doing stuff for you, just like you and I say, or just like you and I think. We're doing stuff for you, and God is telling them, You have missed it. And so here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that remembering the goodness of God is what invokes worship of God. It is the goodness of God that invokes the worship of God. So let me pray, and we'll dig into this text. God, we are thankful to you because you are good. God, we are grateful for the gathering of the saints, where we've sung songs and praised your name, and now where we continue to worship as we examine your word. God, give us grace and wisdom today. Lord, on one hand, the weather is beautiful outside, so may it serve as a reminder of the sweetness of your voice and your kindness, which brings us to repentance. Yet, on the other hand, as we examine your word this afternoon, the words and tone in our passage are words of anger. Nevertheless, may even that tone serve as the same reminder that even your goodness, or excuse me, that your goodness, even in confrontation, is meant to bring us to repentance. Give us grace to hear your words. Give us the grace to change. Give us the grace to worship you, not only with our lips and hearts, but our minds. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, let's dig in. So if you've got a Bible with you, I know I've already told you we're in verses 6 through 14. The reason I keep hammering the Bible part is because we're going to be jumping around in this passage. The way the passage is structured is fairly repetitive. And so we're not necessarily going verse by verse. We're looking at one portion, then jumping down to another portion, then jumping back up to the beginning. And so we're going to consider three areas of this passage. We're going to consider worthless worship We're going to consider pandering hearts, and then we're going to consider a wonderful redeemer. Once more, worthless worship, pandering hearts, and then a wonderful redeemer. Beginning with worthless worship, this is found in verses 6 and 12. Uh, I mentioned last week that Malachi is structured with a series of disputes where God presents an accusation or a claim to Israel, and then Israel challenges that claim. When Israel challenges that claim, God responds by providing the proof of his accusation. And so that's what we're about to see in this second dispute. So beginning in verse 6, God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Jumping down to verse 12. but you profane it, that is his name, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. All right, here we go. So, the accusation here is twofold, and he mentions it twice. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin, and we'll revisit the text over and over again, but the the accusation is twofold. On one hand, Israel's worship, uh, their sacrifices, what they're bringing before God is not acceptable. On the other hand, God is telling Israel that, hey, you're saying the right things, right? If you consider verse 6, a son honors his father, if then I am a father, so they recognize him as father. So he's saying, you say the right things, but everything that you're saying is just lip service. You're not worshiping me. You're going through the motions. Your lips say one thing, and your heart says a completely different thing. And so you might wonder, well, what are these these sacrifices? Let me give you a little bit of context. In the Old Testament, when it comes to the Mosaic Law, God called men to what is called the priesthood. And these individuals stood as mediators between God and the people of God. And they were kind of like the pastors of the day, and their roles consisted of, of several things: uh, teaching the people the word of God, praying for the people, but also it consisted in the sacrifice, the sacrificing of animals. You can read all about this in Leviticus. It is the sacrificial system. And so basically what would happen is the people of God would bring a healthy, perfect animal without any blemish, and the priests would kill it or sacrifice the animal and sprinkle the blood of the animal on the table as a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately accomplish, and that is the forgiveness of sins through the redemption of his blood. The people in Malachi are bringing animals to the priests, and God is responding to Israel by saying, your sacrifice, your worship, your reverence is worthless. It's a really hard word. And it's pretty much gonna be the rest of the, the, the book. And if we were to fast forward to us today, it would be like God telling us, hey, or we're responding to God, I should say, saying, hey, I go to church, I'm there on Sunday afternoon. You know, it's four o'clock. I got other things to do, like football games and stuff, right? Like I go to church, I worship, and God is saying, your worship is meaningless, worthless. It's irreverent. It's empty. Like I show up, and he's like, cool story, bro. It's worthless. See, these little Passages, and we're going to spend a lot more time in other verses in a bit. What they tell us right off the bat is that God cares too much about worship to leave us with unacceptable, half hearted, worthless worship. So let's look at verse 7 and 8. God says, you're offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse eight, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? See, Israel is trying to please God with pandering hearts. In other words, they're trying to indulge him by showing, hey, at least we're showing up. At least we're giving you something. They're trying to gratify God with their worthless worship. So as God confronts Israel, they respond, just like last week, they respond by saying, how? How have we despised you? How have we polluted you? And remember from last week, the tone in the letter right? Israel's tone is arrogant, it's apathetic, it's defensive, it's angry. Therefore, this is the part where where God provides them with proof of their worthless worship. So, this is their challenge. How have we done these things? And God's going to lay out the proof before them. And I want you to note that although God is addressing Israel generally, he's addressing the priests specifically, But we're not gonna touch too much on them yet because next week, it's all about the priest. And so we'll get to that next week, or you can read. So let's examine God's evidence of his accusation. And so he says, hey, your sacrifices are worthless. And Israel is saying, how are they worthless? God says, look at the animals. Look at the kind of sacrifices that you're bringing. They're, They're sick, they're blind, they're lame. They're not acceptable sacrifices. These sacrifices are non-sacrificial. Secondly, the priests, the pastors of the day, the ones that are supposed to guard the table, the ones that teach and preach the word, the ones who stand as mediators between God and the people of God, they're accepting these animals. The priests who are supposed to be church leadership are receiving these animals willingly. And what that tells us is that we find them just as apathetic and indifferent as the rest of Israel. And it's not like they didn't know, because ultimately what we might want to do is start to push back just like Israel. We might want to say, well, maybe that's all they had, and maybe that's what they could do. No, it's not like it's something new, right? God has revealed his law to them already. Consider Deuteronomy fifteen twenty-one. Here it is. But if it, that is an animal, has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, <laughs> you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So he's like, not the agas. Don't act like you didn't know, bro. Further, let's jump down to verse 14 because he, he hits him again. This is confrontation. This isn't it's just this soft word. He's Upset. Now let's look at verse 14. The beginning of verse 14, that is. He goes on to say. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And so he gives us a little bit more insight into what is happening. In other words, Israel is saying, I got this awesome bull. I'm going to sacrifice it. If you would just answer this prayer, Lord, hear my plea. If you do this, I'm going to give you this bull. And then the Lord responds and then they're like, I'm not going to give you this bull. Let me get you the one that's sick. Let me get you the one that's actually worthless. So they go back on their word. They go back on their vow. In short, their sacrifices aren't really sacrifices. It's not costing them anything. They're not sacrificing or coming to God because of his goodness. They're just going through the motions. Their worship is meaningless. It's superficial, it's artificial. It's unacceptable. And you might say, I'm so glad we don't kill goats on Sunday worships anymore. It's like, yes, that's cool. But I want you to consider what Paul tells the Romans. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In our present day, the hope is that we worship God with our lives. The way we live is to be holy and acceptable because of God's work for us and the Holy Spirit's residing in us. So one thing to consider is that when we, as living sacrifices, what kind of offerings, so to speak, do we bring before God? You see, I think that you and I, it's not just the church, you and I, I think you and I are just like the Israelites. We bring offerings that aren't really sacrificial. We bring things before God that really don't cost us anything. And to be clear, Obviously, worship takes place beyond the Sunday gathering, but the context here is the temple worship, and so we're transferring it to the Sunday gathering. So, therefore, let us consider the Sunday gathering. Let's look at Sunday. Here's the question. You ready? Why are you here? Don't answer me. Why are you here? Are you here because it's the goodness of God that invokes worship? Or are you here because this is just something you're supposed to do? Maybe to get your, your spouse to stop nagging. Or maybe you feel like, man, if I, if I show up, God's just gonna get off of my back. If I show up enough, I'm not gonna be condemned. Like it should be pleasing to him that I'm here. All right, let's take it another step. Serving. Why do you serve? Why do you serve? Is it to check off a box? Is it because serving once every six weeks costs you something? Are you only here when you serve? I know that there are individuals who are served and, 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 and they serve rarely and they'll say, well, because I've done it all before. Okay. Let's go a little deeper. Giving. Remember we said when we walked through 2 Corinthians, we're not going to shy away from it. So we're not shying away from it. Why do you give? I can hear a pin drop. Why do you give? Do you give so that you can get something in return from God? Look how awesome I am and look how much I gave. Is it so that God would be pleased with you? Do you only give when you've given to everything else? I paid the bills, I did my loans, bought myself a little something nice on those Amazon Prime days, and now I'm just gonna hook God up with whatever's left over. See, one pastor refers to this, not just giving, but giving and serving and Sunday. One pastor refers to this kind of worship, quote-unquote, is as viewing God as the goodwill God. Y'all ever been to Goodwill? What do you do at Goodwill? Goodwill. Do you give your very amazing stuff, or do you give the stuff that's worthless so someone else can sell? I'm a beggar, right? Some of you are like, well, I actually like Goodwill. That's not the point, okay? That's not the point. The point here is the majority of us, myself included, like I was at Goodwill last week taking an office chair, and nobody was outside the donation center, and I was like, shove the chair and jump back in my truck, right? You do it so that you're getting rid of something worthless so that they would sell it, right? That's how we treat God in worship. That's what he's upset with Israel about. And then, just like Israel, you and I get defensive. You and I get defensive. Because your pushback to God is this. Hey, at least I showed up. God should be pleased with whatever it is I give him. At least I made it. 4 p.m. is hard. God should be happy. You might say, well, I've never actually said that, but you probably thought it. And so as Israel is pouting, just like you and I pout, as Israel grows defensive, just as you and I grow defensive, God responds further with two things. Logic and theology, and I love this part, logic and theology. Here we go, second half of verse eight. He goes on to say, present that to your governor. In other words, present the sacrifice, present the animal. Present that to your governor, will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Here's what's going on. Israel, though they had returned from exile in Babylon, the Persians who sent them back, sent them back, uh, the Persians who sent them back under the rule of King Cyrus sent the Israelites back with a governor still overseeing them. That's why he mentions the word governor, right? Present these sacrifices to your governor. And so ultimately what God is saying in the second half of verse eight is, if you went to your governor, if you went to your city leaders with these kinds of animals, you know, the governor who oversees your livelihood, and you give him worthless animals, what do you think he's going to do? You might be kicked out. You might be killed. That's his logic. Israel's logic is flawed. Their idea is like, if we bring God gifts, any gifts, then God's going to bless us. If we bring any kind of gift, then he's, he's not going to condemn us. God will finally move on. We're not going to talk about my heart again. Consider your families. Consider your job responsibilities. Right? If you were to bring your worthless sacrifices to your job, to your, to your families, what do you think they would say? So their logic is flawed, but God doesn't stop there, right? Because it's not just their logic, it's their theology. See, Israel is thinking if we give God something, where he's gonna hook us up. He's gonna hook us up with something. And that might be your heart. You might think that if you show up, if that you're here, you serve, you give, all that, God's gonna hook me up with tenfold because I sowed that thousand dollar seed. God's going to hook me up. So really, you're a consumer, not a contributor. Man, I'm going to give so that I get something from God. Or, maybe that's not your disposition. Maybe your disposition is one of, man, if I show up, if I give, if I serve, if I'm present, then God will finally accept me. Look at all the things I'm trying to do. Israel, in this, has forgotten that they are already accepted by God. How did he open up? We go back to verses one through five. How did he open up? I have loved you. It's past, present, future. I have loved you. There's nothing to give in order to be loved. He loves them. He loves you. They were forgetting the goodness of God. They were forgetting that it is the goodness of God that evokes worship. It would be, parents, it would be as though your child goes to you and says, hey, Dad, look at what I did for you. Hey, Mom, look at what I built for you. Will you love me now? What would your response be? It would probably be a broken hearted response. No, I've already loved you. How could you be saying that? That's the kind of gospel Israel's believing. That's the kind of lie you believe, Christian. That's the kind of lie that you and I often believe. That if I just do good enough, then maybe God will accept me. Both parties, us, Israel, have forgotten that hey, you are already accepted by God in Christ. But still, God continues to confront them in their attitude. So again, they're becoming defensive. They're pushing back. How have we done this thing? these things? Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13. But you say, so this is God saying what Israel says, but you say, what a weariness this is, and I love it. And you snort at it, and you're like, what does that mean in the Hebrew? It means that they snort at it. You hear their attitude in here, because their attitude toward God is, hey, at least I showed up. At least I'm there for the gathering. At least I went to community group that one time. At least I read that passage as I was falling asleep two nights ago. At least I gave, at least I serve, at least I gave you something, God. Israel's inconvenienced. They're getting defensive. They're getting angry. As if God needs their worship. As if God won't be glorified if we don't somehow just show up. Right? The, in, in, in the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, if you don't worship, I'll make the rocks cry out. Further, God is in perfect fellowship, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, eternally good. They are in fellowship with one another. But his goodness has given us everything that we need. His goodness has met our deepest desire. And so as he has met their deepest desire or their deepest need, just as Jesus has met your deepest need, Christian. What we see Israel doing is responding with empty worship. They're trying to please him with pandering hearts. And later on in this letter, we'll see, or in this book, we'll see what their hearts are really stirred for, and that is their own sin. Ian Duguid, he's a, he's a theologian, writes this. We joyfully offer our hearts, our time, and our possessions to our idols while resenting and resisting the Lord's gracious demands on our lives. The true orientation and focus of our hearts is revealed daily in the regular course of life. Church, what stirs your heart to worship Anybody ever been to a concert? Do you scream, dance, mosh pit, all of the things at concerts? You can answer that one. Yes. Why? I'm not, just hear me out on this. That kind of experience, that kind of like, man, it, all of this came out of me at this concert. Does that transfer over to our worship of God's goodness? I'm not saying we're going to mosh pit. That's not what I'm saying. The point I'm trying to make is that oftentimes we we'll look at these other experiences, we'll look at these other spaces, and we'll say, well, man, that's a totally different space than here. Like, what is it that God can't offer you that a concert can? And this is where we get into discussions. I've, as I've talked to some of you, others in the past, some who visited our church. And we're like, and Well, see, the thing is, it's kind of the worship style at Storehouse. Like, that's why you're here? because of the worship style, because we don't have enough musicians, we need more musicians, we need, what, more lights, we need uh, a building with AC, like, okay? Some will say, uh, you know, it's four o'clock. My favorite line about the four o'clock, and I keep hammering this, my favorite line about the four o'clock, the reason I hammer this is because it didn't come until six months after we moved here, right? But my favorite line about the four o'clock is like, I love our church, I'm just not crazy about the time. Or is it programs? I'm looking for more programs. Here's the thing, if that's what you're looking for, then it's gonna be hard here. But apart from that, apart from that, are those really the kind of questions you wanna be asking? Are you asking the question like, man, does my church address the hard truth that I'm a sinner? Does my church address the beauty of the gospel of Jesus for sinners? Does my church present the gospel as the antidote of my sinful heart toward God? God responds even more. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So they're showing up. Their worship is worthless. It's meaningless. They're pushing back. They're challenging God. How have we done what you say? And here's what God's answer is. Shut it down. Just shut it down. If I can find one to shut it down, let's go. Because his uh, attitude towards him is that they are box checking. They're going through the motions. And these are, these are individuals, the people of God, who are showing up to church every single Sunday. They are the ones serving. They are the ones giving. And God says, shut it down. Because their hearts are far from him. Like, when we gather on Sunday, the goal, it's not just for you, for me. Like, it's, it's not just a struggle for you, right? I struggle with this. And, but the, the goal of Sunday is that uh, worship would be a response of God's goodness for us, right? Therefore, our presence, our service, our giving, that's not getting you in a different level with God if you're trying to be in this like super cool area with God, like you're already accepted by God. We don't please God with pandering. We please him with praise. And so we finally come to the wonderful Redeemer. Verse 11 and the second half of verse 14. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Second half of verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the the nations. It's similar to what God was telling them last week. He's reminding them that He is great. And when they see how great He is, it invokes worship. And so for many of you, you might be thinking, okay, cool, so tell me, what do I need to do? What's the practical application, Pastor? Just tell me. I don't know that I'll go that route, but... The first thing I would say is, I want you to consider, consider. The word consider means to think intentionally, deeply about something. Consider his goodness for you. Consider his goodness for you. He's not just talking about Israel here, but the context nevertheless is, man, when you see how great I am, It will bring about worship. But in those verses, we also get this like hint of the foreshadowing of Christ's coming. That all the nations will see how great God is because of his work for sinners through Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Christ's coming who takes our worthless worship and stands in our place with his perfect worship. Where, we, where what we provide is worthless worship or weak worship, he stands as our wonderful redeemer. So how does God accept our weak Worthless, meaningless worship at times. How, how does God accept us when we get defensive and when we challenge him into thinking that our inadequate worship is good enough? God does this through the sending of his son, who was not only submissive, but a true worshiper who gave us his all as an act of wholehearted worship and a love for his father a suffering servant who obediently willingly and lovingly offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice for us and our salvation The author of Hebrews says it this way. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So he's talking about the priesthood that these dudes were constantly sacrificing these animals. And then he continues, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus entered into human history to do the will of his father and was who was always pleased with him. Jesus glorified the father through his sinless life. He never resented or challenged his father but joyfully worshiped alongside others even though he knew he was surrounded by hypocrites like you and me. The sacrifice that he offered which was himself was not blemished. It was not half-hearted, but given with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus went on the cross in our place and for our sin, and three days later was raised from the dead so that we would not only be forgiven of our sins, but given access to to approach God fully and joyfully. Therefore, when we gather in worship, what the Father sees is not the failures in our worship that are a result of our apathy or our rebellion or our anger, but Jesus' perfect worship in our place. Ian Duguid says it this way, Christ's perfect worship makes our weak and failing worship acceptable in the Father's sight so that he welcomes us joyfully into his glorious presence. I can't tell you, and I'm not going to tell you, hey, you just need to do more. That's not what this is about. Because if the question is, hey man, just tell me what to do, then you've missed it. I can't just say, hey, stop the apathy. But what I can say is, consider. Consider the goodness of God for you through Jesus. See, when we consider this at the forefront of our thinking, it is then that our hearts slowly begin to transform and worship is the result of God's goodness for us, God's work for us. us God's love for us in Jesus God's goodness is what invites us as wandering and weary kids to turn our faces and hearts away from our sin our guilt our shame and turn to the father well what happens when I mess up What happens when I fall on my face all over again? What happens when we fail? God has not left us to ourselves, but has given us the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and lives so that we would worship Him in spirit and truth. It's what Paul tells the Corinthians Now, I would remind you, brothers. I think we preach on this verse maybe once a year, twice a year, right? The whole idea. Now, I would remind you, you and I are forgetful. We are going to forget the goodness of God because something else is always tempting us to turn away from Him. And so, Paul says, Now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast. To the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We can worship God because of God's work for us through Jesus. Listen, everyone worships. Everyone worships. It's a question and matter of who. Everything in our lives, especially when you leave here, maybe even right now, Maybe some football game or some text message is garnering your attention. Everything in our lives beckons our attention, our affection, our adoration. The question is, is Jesus better? Is what God has done for us in Jesus worthy of our attention, our affection, and adoration? Consider His goodness, church. And if you're not a Christian, You are a worshiper. Your heart fuels the worship of your hands. The Bible teaches that you worship what is created rather than creator. So how's that going? Without redemption, there is not true worship because goodness cannot begin with you. It cannot begin with you because people like you and me are flawed. So look to the goodness of a perfect Savior Who pardons all sinners who turn to Him in faith and repentance? Church, it is the goodness of God that invokes the worship of God. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. You are so good. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see and hearts to grasp the goodness of your love for us. Oh Lord, give us the grace to see and remember your goodness for us, especially in the sending of your son Jesus who lived in our stead and died in our place, forgiving us of our sin, redeeming us from our bondage, and by your Spirit, giving us a new heart so that we may affectionately and confidently approach you joyfully. Father, though we fail, it is your abundant grace that keeps calling us back to you. Forgive forgive us of our weak, wandering, and worthless worship of you. It is because we forget about you. It is because we deem others and other things as worthy of our worship, yet they fail us regularly and daily. Forgive us because We then try to earn your favor, forgetting that we already have your favor, that we are already kids of grace. Therefore, give us the courage, give us the confidence to walk as kids.